The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Got a great guest this week, Al Michaels, who is arguably the premier sportscaster in America. Yes, and he is here. He is the voice of NBC Sunday Night Football for like 20 years. He hosted Monday Night Football. He's called numerous World Series. You know, the Miracle on Ice. You know who Al Michaels is. Anyway, we sat down and had a great discussion that went on and on and on to the point where I'm going to break it up into two parts. Part one is this week. Part two is next week. Uh, You're going to want to hear the entire thing. So today we talk a little bit about his start, his baseball career, being in the World Series when he was still in his 20s, covering the 1989 San Francisco earthquake, also an early job he had on the dating game, his time at ABC, and of course, Oswald the Rabbit. Al Michaels, this week on Hollywood and Levine. Okay, the first thing I want to do is tell a story about you, a story that you probably don't remember. It's 1974, and I'm a disc jockey at KYA in San Francisco, and you're doing the Giants. They were terrible that year, by the way, as you probably do remember. I do. Okay, a year later... I'm in L.A., and I'm trying to break into writing, and I hear that the Dodgers have an opening. So I send a letter to Peter O'Malley, and I say, I don't know this person. I have no idea whether or not he is even interested, but this guy, Al Michaels, who's doing the Giants, was great. You should hire this guy. And I got a very nice letter back from him, and... uh, A year later, I did break into writing, and my partner and I are sitting at my table in the apartment working on a mash script, and the phone rings, and it's you. You had somehow gotten a hold of that letter, and you just called me out of the blue to thank me for that letter. I don't remember that. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting, because I, uh, I had written to Walter O'Malley when I was... In, uh, in the minor leagues uh, doing uh, the Hawaii Islanders. Right. And uh, tried to get him to uh, remember my name, keep me in mind. I said, I got a 
beautiful letter back from him. And then I met Peter. I met Peter when I was doing minor league baseball in Hawaii in 1968 through 1970 because when I was in Hawaii, our big rival was the Spokane Indians, who were the Dodgers AAA Farm Club. Right. And Walter O'Malley had sent his son Peter to Spokane to become the president and run that team. And that was a team that featured, among others, a manager by the name of Tommy Lasorda, a few the name guys. sounds familiar. It sounds yeah. familiar. And some of the guys who played on that team were Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, Bill Russell, Bobby Valentine, uh-huh. Bill Buckner. And so when I was doing minor league baseball back in the late 60s in Hawaii, uh, I was announcing games that featured those guys. And then we all kind of <laughs> came up together. They went to the Dodgers. I went to the Cincinnati Reds for three years. Right. I did the Reds from 71 through 73. Then went to the Giants for the simple reason that they tripled my salary. <laughs> Three times what I was making in Cincinnati, so that was a fairly easy move to make, even though I had left one of the great baseball teams of all time, the Big yeah. Red Machine. How old were you when you got the Cincinnati job? 26. Wow. And then you got, what, the 72 World Series? They the were 72 in 72 World Series, yes. Yeah. Because in those years, what happened was uh, NBC had Kurt Gowdy, who I loved right. and idolized, and Tony Kubek doing the games. And then if your team, and you were the number one announcer for your team, which I was in Cincinnati, won the pennant, you got to do the World Series. And right. what uh, the format was was that you did the World Series home games on NBC television and the road games on NBC radio with Jim Simpson. Right. And so we played the uh, Oakland A's that year, and I mm-hmm. did games one, two, six, and 7. In Cincinnati, 3, 4, and 5 on the radio in Oakland. I was 27 years old. I'm doing the World Series. It was like, man, you you could have, I don't know. It was an out-of-body experience totally. And all I remember about the first game of the 72 World Series, we're coming on the air, and I'm thinking to myself, I cannot believe this. I am doing (laughs) the world. I've dreamed about this since I was a kid. Of course, I was a kid like a few years before that. Sure. So, But my whole life had been spent watching the World Series and thinking about someday maybe, maybe it could possibly happen. And here it was. And Kurt Gowdy comes on the air. And then the camera widens out to include me in the scene set. And the only thought in my brain was, please, God, when I open my mouth, let air come out, <laughs> and, and I was able to get it out. And it was, you know, I, I've I, I've seen the uh, somebody had the tape of it, and I've I've watched it back, and and there I am, and uh, I, I take people on a tour of Riverfront Stadium at that time, which was a perfectly symmetrical sure. symmetrical stadium with uh, astroturf and the rest, and that was my. That was my opening salvo. So I got to do the World Series. By the seventh game, I mean, I'm in seventh heaven. I feel great. I feel comfortable. We lose to Oakland. The next year, we win the division. So I'm going to do the World Series again because the Reds are the best team in baseball in 73. But we lose to the Mets in five games, best of five in the playoffs. So uh, I don't do the World Series in 73. I go to San Francisco, and then I have to watch Marty Brenneman in my job doing the 75 and 76 World Series on NBC. That was the, the big red machine and, of course, one of the classic World Series of all time against the Red sure. Sox in 75. Yeah. Yeah. Do you miss baseball? I mean, you really haven't done much of it in, like, 20 years. You do a game here and there for MLB, but 
Mm-hmm. Not really that much. Not, not, not even he, here and there. I did one game with Bob Costas back in 2012. So just here. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I built my career around baseball. I loved baseball. It was my first foray into the into the business. Uh, when I went to ABC, it was primarily in 1977 full-time to do baseball. And I did every year of Monday Night Baseball from 1976 when they got the package through 1989, which was uh, we ended it with a World Series, the Earthquake World Series. And I did the first you know, four years as mainly on the B game, some A games, and then went to the A game in, I think, 1981. So I did every year of Monday Night Baseball, loved baseball, loved it. Everything else was a supplement to it. But when ABC lost the rights to it after the 1989 season and CBS came in for four years, uh, I was out of it. Uh, we got back into it um, in kind of a, a wacky way in, in, in 94, 95 with something called the Baseball Network, which we shared with NBC. So I came back and I did some baseball games, mm-hmm. including the uh, 95 World Series, which we split with with NBC. But the last game that I would have done... Uh, on network television would have been game five of the 1995 World Series between Atlanta and Cleveland. And uh, that was it. And then it went away again. Uh, I was at ABC. We never got it back. Went to NBC in 06. Haven't seen it. So do I miss it? I really did when it happened, when we lost it. I missed it tremendously. I you know, I didn't know what to do. I really, even though I was on Monday Night Football at sure, that time, I'd gotten yeah. a great gig, and I, I was uh, doing a lot of things for ABC. But I really wanted to do baseball. Was hopeful we'd get it back. But uh, Ken, the the uh, reality is, I mean, right now I'm so far removed from if you threw me into a baseball game, you know, <laughs> I, I might still have uh, you know Manny Sanguian catching for Pittsburgh. So it's been a long time. <laughs> on the other hand, uh, you know, there's the road not taken. You know, do you sometimes think, you know, I could be in my 45th year doing the Giants. Uh, Either <laughs> that or, well, there. I mean, the irony is, as we sit here and tape this, uh, the um, my successor was Marty Brenneman. So in Cincinnati. when I yeah. left Cincinnati after the 73 season, they went out. And I went to San Francisco. They went out and they hired... Uh, a young guy who had done uh, minor league baseball in Virginia. Yeah, Tidewater. At Tidewater. My alma mater. Yeah, you're, you're uh, yeah alma I did mater. two years at Tidewater. Right. Yeah. And Marty had done, I think, the Virginia Squires of the ABA and, mm-hmm. and a few other things. And they hired Marty. And that worked out pretty well. Yes. Yeah. Marty's going to. Marty. <laughs> I called Marty when he announced his retirement. I said, get out of here. I said, you succeeded me. You're not going to leave before I do. And he's <laughs> laughing, but he wants to do a lot of things with the rest of his life and all of that. So, you know, Marty wraps up a, a, a tremendous career, got the Ford Frick Award, You're right. Hall of Famer. And uh, uh, the Reds made a heck of a choice. Uh, after my three years there, they got Marty for 44. You know, it's interesting. I, I talked to Marty and. He was saying how he was thinking of, you know, scaling back his schedule a few years ago. And I said, so you mean you're not going to do a lot of road games? He says, no, I'm going to miss home games. He says, I love going on the road. (laughs) (laughs) I love going on the road. And this, like... Yeah. Surprised me. Yeah, we're a little different in that regard. Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought Vin Scully had the uh, the best thing going when you know Vinny began to wind down in his eighties, and uh, he cut back on his schedule. But he right. cut back 
on the road games, apart from I think you know he did San Diego and San Francisco, right. the, and the West, Arizona. He did, yeah, he did the West. I think that would that's the best way to go. Uh huh. You talked about the 1989 earthquake game, and you know it's one thing to be a baseball announcer, and it's another thing to be a broadcaster, which basically is really the job. Mm-hmm. And when that earthquake occurred, as you guys were signing on for the World Series game, you immediately switched gears and you became a news anchor. And you did a, a great job of it. And really, this is a job of communication more than anything else. And you, it seemed to me that you were completely comfortable in that role, as if you had done that many times before. There's a great parallel between... Uh news and sports you're reporting and you go back to the basic tenets of journalism 101 in the 10th grade who what when where why and how Mm -hmm. and it's pretty much the same thing in sports even though you know sports is kind of fantasy land and the toy department as some people like to call it of life and all of the rest but i've always been a pretty pretty curious person I've, uh, i've read a lot through uh, my life. It's not just sports. So I had a, a basic knowledge of a lot of things going into that, including, you know, geography. That's right, because you had lived in San I, Francisco. I lived there, but yeah. I always loved maps. I loved uh, aerial hmm. photography. And I think I could have done that in a lot of cities because I, I, I just I, I enjoy geography. And I, you know, I, I, I used to love, and I still do, I love looking at maps. And so it was one thing to have lived there, but I, if that had happened in Chicago, I think I could have done maybe not the same job I did in San Francisco, but I, I know the lay of the land. I understand where, you know, Evanston is right. and Joliet and Skokie and all of the rest because I paid attention to it. Did I know anything about geology? Not a lot, but I knew enough. And I'd lived in California for so many years. I knew about earthquakes. I'd experienced them firsthand would read about them. So I wasn't going to go on the air and pretend that I was a geological expert. I was not. But I knew enough about it to at least uh, give you some information. Then we brought in, you know, experts in certain areas and all of the rest. But in situations like that, I mean, reporting is reporting. And maybe there's more of an entertainment component to broadcasting sports than there is news. Mm -hmm. But... The tenets are basically the same, and I go back to that 10th grade journalism thing, that who, what, when, where, why, and how. And that's all I thought about that night. And then the other thing I remember is that I wanted to be a 1,000% accurate. I wasn't going to speculate. Um, There was was a lot of information being fed to me that night, which I uh, cast um, a curious eye Mm -hmm. upon. And when I could take myself off the air and talk to either New York or our people in control here, and they would tell me something, I would say, how do we know that? How do, I said, can we verify that? Because at one point, I was being told that one of the networks was reporting that the Golden Gate Bridge had collapsed. And I'm being fed this in my ear. I can't remember which network it was. And I said, wait a second. Probably Fox. No, whatever, whatever. They weren't even in existence at that time. Still. Couldn't have been. Yeah. Right, right. Before they, before they came on the air. So uh, we had the blimp that night. 
And I said, it's the goal. It's it's not the Golden Gate Bridge. It's the Bay Bridge, and it's not even the postcard version of the Bay Bridge. It's the cantilevered portion where one section went down. Right. So I said, just I said, have the blimp. Let me see the Golden Gate Bridge. So they panned over. This is while I'm not on the air, but you know we were seeing pictures, and I think mm-hmm. either P- Peter Jennings or Ted Koppel had taken over from the east at that point, and they were bringing me back in, and I. So I said, show me the Golden Gate Bridge. And they get a shot of it. And I see cars going across it. So clearly the Golden Gate Bridge has not collapsed. Right. So I never went there. But these are the types of things you have to be very careful in those situations uh, with secondhand knowledge, with hearsay, with all the rest. And I knew, you see, my theory has always been you don't have to be first, but you have to be right. Mm-hmm. You have to be right. That's the most important thing. And, you know, when I hear somebody say, you know, they were, we were first with this, you know what? Nobody gives a damn about that. Right. That's a vanity play. That's an internal vanity play. Forget about who has it first or this guy reported it or whatever. I don't care. Just get the facts right. Okay, before we get to football, I want to ask you about uh, something I heard where your first job or one of your first jobs was working for the dating game picking out um, the women contestants. I was on the dating game twice in 1967. You couldn't have picked a girl who had a sense of humor? You know, I don't <laughs> remember you being on that show, because by that point, so I worked for Chuck Barris. I got out of college, and I'm trying to get a, a broadcasting job. Uh-huh. But I'm sending, you know, in those days, snail mail. You'd send a letter out. You'd go to the mailbox every day, right. hoping that you got a reply. So, you know, to make some money. I got married, too. But uh-huh. I'm still married to that gorgeous woman. Okay. After all of these years. I've <laughs> known her since the 10th grade, Linda Michaels. And um, so Chuck, I, I, got a, I met Chuck Barris. Of all, you know, crazy people in my life, I've met, I've met so many unbelievable people. And Chuck would be one of them. The, the gong show and the whole thing. And, yeah, and how he uh, said he was a CIA, on, a CIA agent, agent and all that. Chuck, yeah. was, right. Chuck was one of a kind. I mean, Chuck was at our... Our wedding and in the receiving line, we got married on a Saturday night in 1966. And wanted to know, you know, after congratulating me and congratulating Linda, uh, wanted to know when I, I'd come back to work. And I said, Well, I'm going to, you know, to Lake Tahoe yeah. for three days back on Thursday. And he wanted to know if I was in the office on Thursday. So, I mean, that was, we, you know, I love Chuck. He didn't offer to provide a chaperone? Not, not <laughs> at all. No, no. But, but that's another story. My wife was actually a chaperone on a couple of trips because she wound up in the office. So this, I, this lasted about a year and a half with Chuck. And um, one of the first jobs was to, uh, I was what we, what we called a Chinese bandit. He had a bunch of guys and a couple of women uh, who would sit at a bank of phones in the office and cold call people to see if they wanted to come down and try out to be on the dating game. Really? Oh, yeah. And I was one of those guys. And you would sit there from 9 in the morning until 10.30 at night. Now, remember, this is rotary phones, uh-huh. no answering machines. Uh-huh. So you'd sit there holding the phone to your ear, <laughs> go through the you know the dial, uh-huh. dial all the numbers. Most of the time during the day, people weren't home. Uh, and you'd get rejected. It's pretty much like a robocall these days. You'd get rejected. A lot of people would hang up on you. But uh, that was part of my, that was my job. So Chuck hired me in 1967, late 66, actually, uh, 95 bucks a week. 
And Chuck was a master psychologist because after about four days, he comes in, he says, you're doing a fabulous job. I'm going to give you a raise to a hundred bucks. <laughs> a week and a half later, fantastic job, $105. And Chuck would give you incremental raises of $5. Just up until, to keep you going. Oh, yeah. yeah. Until, so I got six raises from 95 up to $125. You'd be working a thousand hours a week, <laughs> and I was one of the people who would would assist in the the run throughs where we you were a, a, a contestant. We'd bring people into the office. We'd go through a mock game with them. That's sometimes, what I did. Some, yeah. Sometimes I would MC the mock game. Yeah. And and then Chuck, also, you might have been the guy who I I could have been. I could have been, yeah. been the Bob. They were like a, they were like a bunch of us, and you would go like right. number eight, uh, sure. number six. And, of course. Yeah. Jim Lang actually did the show on television. I got to know Jim very well in San Francisco when I was there, and then uh, Bob Eubanks did the newlywed game. So Chuck started the newlywed game when I was there. So it kind of got, I was going back and forth between trying to find newlywed people mm-hmm. and dating game people. And then he, he had a show in 1967 called Dream Girl, which lasted only a year. And that was kind of like a daily Miss America contest where five okay. women would come in and you'd pick one. And it was, it was almost like Queen for a day. You didn't have playoffs at the end of uh-huh. that stuff. So Chuck was a genius. And uh, by the time I left there, I think it was making. Maybe 140 bucks a week. Ooh! And then it was, and I, had, I always told Chuck, I said, "Look, if I get an opportunity to go to uh, uh, to do sports, and then the opportunity came in 1968, the Hawaii Islanders, and Chuck gave me a, a great going away party." Ah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. That's that's great to hear. Probably yeah. bring your own bottle, but he, he did no. He <laughs> he paid for the whole thing. Okay. More with Al Michaels in a moment, but first, I would like to introduce you to my new sponsor, HoneyBook. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. Now, as you know, I'm a creative person. I'm always out there selling my plays and my books and my seminars. I'm a cottage industry, and I love the creative aspect of it, but I hate the administration part. And so... I found HoneyBook, and it allows me to consolidate all of the services that I already use, like QuickBooks and Google Suite and MailChimp, and it takes care of all of the tedious administrative tasks that I hate to do. It's fantastic. And I would like to introduce you to HoneyBook with an introductory offer. You just go to HoneyBook.com, and you type in the promo code HOLLYWOOD, and you get 50% off your first year. Entire year, 50% off. Just go to HoneyBook.com and once again, use the promo code HOLLYWOOD. You get paid faster, you work smarter with HoneyBook. And again, HoneyBook.com, promo code HOLLYWOOD. Now let's get back to my talk with Al Michaels. So you go to ABC, you do a lot of different sports. This is going to be the only interview where I'm not going to ask you about the Winter Olympics. Yeah, you, you describe it very well in your autobiography. You can't make this up. And by the way, congratulations on that book. It's, it's like you actually wrote it. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing was um, I, I collaborated with John Wertham, Sports Illustrated, great writer. Um, and uh, And then I brought... A couple of guys in uh, to help out as well, uh, Bruce Kornblatt and Aaron Cohen, who I, I've worked with at NBC. And uh, the most important thing about that book was to get it out of my voice. 
there's a tremendous difference between a uh, an autobiography and a biography, and uh, especially in my in my case where people who are going to buy the book. They hear me. They they know what I sound like. They right. know your the, cadence. They know the and, yeah. words I use. Right. And so it it was uh, the, the hardest part of that book was getting everything into a form in which people would think they were hearing my voice. And we were able to do it. And I, you know, I, I worked on it for I don't know about a year and a half, maybe. And I thought about it for two years prior to that, and. Uh, it was pretty much like a root canal doing it. <laughs> but when it came out, uh, I was very happy with it. And I really did it. I think the impetus was, you know, my two kids are you know older now, obviously, have seen the, the whole career and all of the rest of my life. But my grandkids, I started, you know, collecting grandkids. And I have four mm-hmm. of them right now. And Congratulations. And, and thank you. And, and, and now they're getting older, too. But I wanted them to... Be able to go back and at least open up something and and, and know that you know this was pop up and uh, this is what pop up did and all of the rest and you know when it came out I was thrilled I, I really was because it, it, the process was over I had recovered from the root canal mm-hmm. and uh, I must tell you of all the a lot of great wonderful a lot, a lot of wonderful things have happened to me in my life and I'm I've been very blessed but one of the sh- most stunning and shocking things. Well, since, you know, I'd read newspapers uh, voraciously for years and all of the rest. And, and when I picked up the New York Times book review one day, and there's my book <laughs> on the bestseller list. Uh-huh. I mean, that that was another out-of-body experience. I was like, what? Because when the book comes out, you're going, oh, you know, it's a, it's a niche thing. And some, you know, avid sports fans might read it and all of the rest. But now I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, What? That's me on the bestseller list. So uh, that was a, a very unexpected and phenomenal thrill for me. Well, congratulations. Well, thank and you. it really is a good I'd have yeah. you sign it, but it's on Kindle. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit uh, about football. And one thing before I get into really the process of what you do when you left ABC for NBC, This is such a great Hollywood story Mm -hmm. that as part of your negotiations, ABC was owned by Disney and NBC was owned by Universal. Right. And part of the negotiations was that Universal, years and years ago, Walt Disney had created a character called Oswald Rabbit Mm -hmm. and somehow Universal got the rights Mm-hmm. And the Disney organization was bugged by that <laughs> for 80 years. And that was part of the negotiations was that Disney get back Oswald's rabbit. You were traded for a rabbit. Well, in a way, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes uh, – look, it's uh, an overblown component of the story. And I wrote about this in the book too. It wasn't the Disney organization that wanted Oswald back. It was the Disney family. Oh, okay. There were a couple of relatives of Walt Disney, and what had happened was Walt Disney had created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit when he was at Universal. When he left, they would not let him take Oswald with him. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Mickey Mouse next to Oswald, it's the same thing. It's a rabbit and a mouse, and they look they, they right. basically look the same. Yeah, different okay. ears, but so it's all, the same. All, all yeah. Walt Disney did is he, he took he took the old rabbit and and, and turned it into a mouse. Okay. So we're going through this uh, situation where I had done Monday Night Football 
for 20 years on ABC. And now ESPN was going to take it over, even though it was inside the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people at ESPN won't mention any particular names at this point, now were given the keys to the Ferrari. And let's put it this way. One, one of them one of them was able to run it into the wall pretty well because the first thing this person did was he fired John Madden. So that should be on his resume. Right, he right. fired John Madden. Okay. Uh, and then he let uh, Fred Gadelli and Drew Esikoff, they stayed with our producer and director who I've now only worked with for the last 20 years. Right. 20 with Drew right. and 19 with Fred, who are the best of all time. And told them, no, you're not going to produce this and direct this on ESPN, but you're going to do auto racing or whatever. <laughs> and wanted to get rid of me too, but was basically told by the higher-ups that I, I'm not leaving. But I wanted to leave because I realized that they were going to do the game in a way that wasn't comfortable for me. I'd worked with John Madden at that point for four years, loved it. I'd worked with Fred Goodelli and Dressikoff for all of those years, Loved it. Loved the other people that were now going to go to NBC. And Dick Ebersole, who ran NBC, came in and swooped up. He couldn't wait to get Madden, so he got him right away. He got Gadelli and Esikoff uh, fairly quickly. And then he wound up calling George Bodenheimer at ESPN years later and saying, thank you so much. I can't believe it. And meanwhile, I mean, th- th- this continued on. I mean, Madden and I right. then, so I had so I had to figure out a way to get NBC. And, and Dick and I had had... Uh, Couple of discussions. We couldn't get to turn. We couldn't reach uh, an agreement on a contract at that point. But we we did a lame duck year for Monday Night Football in 2005, and I knew that I couldn't continue in 2006. They were going to put me with a new producer, a new director. I think Joe Theismann was going to be my commentator. You know, I really loved John. I didn't want to leave John Madden. So. There was a um, behind-the-scenes negotiation. Of course, the, the the papers couldn't wait to get into this. They knew something was going on. And, uh, you know, I, you can't negotiate in the papers, and I didn't. But what happened was uh, I was going to be let go by by Disney, by, by ABC at that point and ESPN. To, uh, be, they knew I didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a matter of breaking the contract so much as it was, hey, guys, this isn't going to work for either of us. Mm -hmm. And I know that it was written at one point, oh, you know, Michael's achy-breaky contract or whatever. I took a pay cut, first one in my life. That's I I wanted to go to NBC, Uh, and it wasn't even a matter of money at that point. So I get a call from one of the higher-ups at uh, ABC and says to me, hey, look, he said, this is going to happen. But believe it or not, there's this character, this cartoon character. (laughs) And what it amounted to, Ken, is we threw this in there as a way to make it seem as if this was was not some insidious underground backdoor play. Mm -hmm. So once we got the rabbit in there... Everybody concentrated on the rabbit. And we all laughed like crazy internally because this got picked up as the lead, as, as part of the story. <laughs> so when they say I got traded for the rabbit, no, that deal was going to happen anyway. But the rabbit made it a kind of a fun thing. And, you know, what, whatever went on, went on uh, before anybody would do the forensics of what, you know, what had taken place in terms of the contract negotiations and all the rest to get out of there. So we put the rabbit in as a ruse 
And it worked. It, it still worked. works to this day. Yeah. yeah, there you go. But those things do happen. Yeah. Uh, I had a show on CBS in the 90s called Almost Perfect with Nancy Travis. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get picked up for the second year. It was done at Paramount. And CBS at the time wanted JAG, which was just released by NBC. Mm-hmm. And Paramount said, we'll give you JAG, but you have to take Almost Perfect. And then they came back and said, Paramount owns a couple of TV stations. We'll take Almost Perfect if yeah. you clear Tom Snyder in Salt Lake City. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so right. those are the kind of things that actually do happen in the negotiation. It had nothing to do with the actual show. Right. No, it has nothing to do with it. And also, in, in, my, in my deal, part of it was that ESPN slash ABC slash Disney were going to get the rights to do more Olympic highlight coverage and Ryder Cup coverage. So that was really in my deal. <laughs> right. we're, okay, we're going to let Al out, but here's part of the deal. So then the rabbit come, rabbit gets thrown in there <laughs> and becomes the big story. I mean, it was the ultimate deflection. And that will do it. Next week, part two of my chat with Al Michaels. Great guest, wasn't he? Wow. Anyway, next week we're going to get more into football. We'll be dealing with the the process, his preparation, how he calls a game, doing the Super Bowl, rules, a whole lot more. Anyway, it's going to be so exciting that you'll pay for the whole seat, but you'll only use the edge. Hopefully you come back and join us next week, part two, with Al Michaels. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Bruce and Jason Miller. Uh, If you want to email me, I will write you back, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I'm also on Instagram. Who isn't? Hollywood and Levine. And I got a picture up there of me and Al and uh, Bob's Big Boy. So you're going to want to check that out. Uh, let's see, what else? Please subscribe. I love a five-star review. And uh, that's pretty much it. Again, next week, part two with Al Michaels. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. Hollywood and the fine. <laughs>